Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Our text for our sermon tonight is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. We are studying this biblical theme of confession and repentance, very important ideas in Scripture in our Lenten series. And this evening we come to a very key text which contrasts worldly sorrow with godly sorrow, with the godly sorrow that leads to genuine repentance and we're told leads to salvation. It's helpful to know a little of the context of the passage I'm going to read here in 2 Corinthians 7. It has to do with the church of Corinth and as you know, they were in a sense a problem church. And in seeking to shepherd this fledgling Corinthian church, The Apostle Paul had written a strong letter to them. In our text, he calls it a severe letter. It's probably not referring to 1 Corinthians. It's probably referring to a letter that no longer is extant, that no longer exists. And and Paul had some anxiety about how this letter was being received by them and how they would respond to it. Um, Would they reject it? And would they reject the ministry of the Apostle Paul and end up being led astray by these false apostles that were a real problem at the church, and that's a lot of what the letter had to do with. Well, after much waiting, because letters didn't travel fast in those days and and the, the answer didn't get back very fast, but finally, Titus comes to Paul, and he's referring to this in chapter 7, that Titus has come back to him from Corinth with news of the Corinthians' response to this severe rebuke. And the news is very good. Titus tells Paul, apparently, that they have genuinely repented of the sin in which they were involved, and they were apparently very grieved after Paul exhorted them, uh, grieved over the breach in their relationship with Paul, and, and they now deeply Uh, repented of their disloyalty to the Apostle Paul and to the Word of God. And so Paul is much relieved and thankful for this restoration of their relationship to him. And so that's the context as we pick up the account in 2 Corinthians 7 at verse 8. This is Paul. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but, what, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, 
At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. We're going to stop there. But our key text is really verse 10. We're going to focus in on that. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I want us to look this evening under two main points. What is the nature of worldly sorrow? And then secondly, what is the nature of godly sorrow that leads to repentance? So let's start with what is the nature of worldly sorrow? And we find here that mere worldly sorrow about sin leads to death, the apostle writes. In other words, a guilty conscience or regret over something you've done, remorse, maybe shame before other people, embarrassment, what you've done, or broken relationships with others because of your sins. Uh, None of these feelings lead ultimately to life and salvation and spiritual healing and a right relationship to God. They don't lead to redemption, but to death, if that's all that they are. If If that's all the further they go, they lead to spiritual and ultimately to eternal death apart from Christ. There are many biblical examples of people who had some kind of form of remorse or regret about what they did. We think of uh, a King Herod Antipas, the Herod that was king in a certain region when John the Baptist began to preach and he eventually imprisoned John. And it's interesting because the gospel accounts tell us that Herod loved to hear John preach. Isn't that amazing? He, he, he would listen to John preach. He'd preach a brother, you know. He liked to hear what he said, but ultimately there wasn't any kind of true repentance. There was only worldly sorrow, and he ended up giving in to uh, having John beheaded when Salome danced for him and his guests, and he was backed into a corner. He wanted to save face And so he had John beheaded. And it's interesting that by the time Jesus, during his Passion Week, when he was on trial before Herod, Pilate, you know, doesn't know what to do with him, so he sends him to Herod. And Jesus has responded to Pilate. He said certain things to him. But when Herod questions him, Jesus Christ has nothing to say to Herod. He is silent. Tells you how serious was the lack of true faith and repentance on Herod's part. Or even we think of Pontius Pilate, a Gentile. In the middle of the trial, Pilate's wife sends him a note and says, have nothing to do with this man. I had a bad dream because of him. Pilate certainly must have been struggling with some degree of ambivalence or regret about taking an innocent man's life. He clearly knew that Jesus was not guilty of sin. So the Bible has many examples of feelings of remorse, we would say, that don't arise to true repentance. What are some of the ways that, that people typically deal with their guilty conscience apart from the only remedy of the gospel? Think about that. All of us know what it's like to feel guilty about things, about actions or thoughts or words. We all know what that's like. What, what is the worldly way to try to cover that over? One is you try to minimize the consequences of the sin, right? 
you cover up your sin in some way or you make excuses for it to make it so it doesn't seem as bad or you blame others around you like it's their fault. Or maybe you promise in a moralistic kind of way to turn over a new leaf in your life. We all know what it's like in the media when somebody falls in some way, they immediately hire a public relations firm and um, do damage control. That's the idea here. Well, King Saul, back in King David's time, knew a lot about this. In 1 Samuel 15, uh, he had directly disobeyed the prophet Samuel. And he had taken upon himself offering the sacrifice, which only a priest could do. In other words, a very serious sin, doing something that only a priest was permitted by God to do. And he only had excuses for the prophet Samuel when he shows up on the scene. And, you know... King Saul is somewhat apologetic and sorry about it, but, you know, it was because of this, it was because of that. But when push came to shove, what did he beg Samuel to do? He begged him, please don't leave yet. At least show up at the public sacrifice with me. What was he concerned about? What everyone would think. Worldly sorrow. So not only try to minimize the consequences, another way to deal with sin in a worldly way is try to atone for your guilt with religious or humanistic good deeds. We see that all the time as well. All the religions of the world except Christianity are basically amount to something like this where you try to atone for your sin by doing religious ceremonies, by um, maybe even fasting regularly or uh, giving up something or like Martin Luther used to do, staying on his knees for a long time, confessing his sin and, and not being warm enough at night and other kinds of ascetic practices, maybe giving charitable gifts in a good cause or participating in humanitarian efforts. And all these may be a fine thing to do in their place, but not as a way to deal with our sin. All religiosity or humanistic effort is insufficient to deal with our sin. Or maybe a person primarily uses escapism to deal with a guilty conscience. Escapism is everywhere these days, isn't it? And it's nothing new. Jonah fled from the Lord. He escaped literally. He got on a ship. But it's interesting with Jonah's experience, Jonah was able to sleep deeply in the midst of a storm. To me, that's got to be escapist sleeping. When he knew that he was the cause of it, the sailors have to wake him up eventually and plead with him. People escape the voice of conscience by filling their lives with constant clutter or busyness, uh, by nonstop social media, by binge-watching TV, by video games and virtual worlds online, all kinds of things like that, or all the typical pleasures and distractions, the good old distractions of the world, money, things, comfort, success, your job, and on and on it goes, by being busy with this world. That's worldly sorrow. That's not true repentance. Or another way to deal with a guilty conscience is to more and more try to silence it 
by ignoring it. And the scary thing about this one is that the Bible says this is the very dangerous thing to do. The Bible talks about a hardened heart. In Ephesians 2, it talks about Gentiles whose hearts are hardened. You know, they've ignored and silenced the voice of conscience so much that it barely squeaks in their mind and heart. 1 Timothy 4.2, the Apostle Paul talks about a seared conscience. You know, in the old westerns, when a cowboy was injured in some way, they'd go to the campfire and they'd take a hot iron out of the fire and they'd go to the wound and they'd sear the wound. They'd cauterize the wound. It's, it's seared, so it kills all the bacteria and everything. And that idea of, of searing, of cauterizing, the apostle talks about that as someone who hardens their heart against sin again and again and again and again and again. And at first, their conscience convicts them and it cries out and they're upset by it, but soon, after time goes by, they become hardened to it. When the voice of conscience has been silenced by a gradual process of ignoring it, it is desensitized and it's hardened. One of the ways that happens is just it's easy to buy in to whatever the culture around us tells us is right and wrong. That's always been the way it is. There are many things that our culture tells us that it tells us are okay to do, but the Bible condemns. And by the way, that's true for every generation of every time. Culture is never exactly according to God's word, even in the most godly times. You might think, well, how could people who lived uh, long ago in a culture that justified owning enslaved people, how could they stand for it? How could they do that? How could they not have seen that was wrong? How could they not have done something about that? Well, the answer is they had, they, um, they, the culture had the impact of desensitizing their conscience so that they could live with it and not even think about it anymore. Now, some people were more bothered by it uh, than others. And of course, some did take action and the abolition movement began and so forth. But the same thing could be said about people living in the era of Jim Crow when there was such racism still. But think of today's cultural blindness to sin in so many areas. I can't begin to go through them all, but just a few. People can watch TV scenes that would have made their grandparents blush and they can think nothing about it. We now have a society that doesn't bat an eye at sexual immorality of any kind or couples living together outside of marriage. In many circles, that is completely normalized. In fact, in most circles where our young people interface with their peers, what's seen as abnormal is if a couple gets engaged and isn't living together. Do you realize that that is very often mocked? That's how normalized sin has become. And now, in recent years, our government has even validated gay marriage as if that somehow erases what the Bible plainly teaches about it. Or think about our political discourse, especially in social media, where hatred and anger 
are normalized on both sides of the political spectrum. They're seen as common. They're really seen as okay, and that's the way to move ahead. Every culture of every age serves to desensitize people to the reality of sin. It may change what's seen as sin and what's not from age to age, but the the principle remains the same. This is all worldly sorrow. To silence the voice of conscience, you have to discredit the very truth of God. And you can do that boldly and outwardly, or you can do that simply in your own thinking, in your inner thoughts, in your inner convictions. You can more and more discredit the Word of God and not believe it, and then your conscience won't bother you as much. It's interesting, in Jeremiah chapter 36, we read about a king who was at one extreme who really boldly rejected God's Word. In this case, the prophet Jeremiah had been proclaiming the Word of God to the people of Judah. And uh, King Jehoiakim, as he was called, had Jeremiah placed under house arrest. So Jeremiah wasn't free to go into the temple in Jerusalem and preach the word of God that the Lord was giving him. So instead of doing that, Jeremiah begins dictating his messages to his assistant, Baruch. And Baruch writes them all down on a scroll that was used in those days. And then Baruch went into the temple and began reading the word of the Lord that had come to Jeremiah. And the people were listening and hearing it. And King Jehoiakim gets wind of this. And he sends his uh, couriers to the temple to pick up Baruch and to get the scroll. And the scene that's pictured for us in Jeremiah 36 about what the king did next is very interesting because it describes King Jehoiakim sitting by his fire pot, think one of our modern, uh, what are those things called, that you, you know, your fire, your fire area there in your backyard. He's sitting there in the winter palace, it says, his winter house, and he has someone reading the scroll that he had confiscated, and every few columns that are read, he takes his pen knife out, and he cuts off that part that's read, and he goes, go ahead and read, and he throws it in the fire. Can you imagine the audacity to throw the word of God in the fire? That's boldly discrediting the word of God. That's for sure. Complete disregard. And after describing the scene, Jeremiah 36, 24 says, Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Tearing your garments is an outward sign of inward repentance and sorrow. In other words, they had greatly hardened their hearts against the word of God. There was no fear of God. Clearly, there are many ways to silence the pangs of a guilty conscience. And worldly sorrow leads to death. Verse 10 tells us that death in the sense of spiritual death, deeper and deeper alienation from God, separation from God, that if not remedied, will end in eternal death in hell. And so, as people live with the regret and the remorse of a guilty conscience that eats away deep down in your heart, it often leads to a sense of hopelessness and ultimately despair about life. And Scripture tells us 
that that would be the state of all of us apart from the merciful intervention of God in the sending of Jesus Christ to save us. And that leads us to the second kind of grief at the beginning of verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. What can we say about this godly sorrow? Two things. One, it is a genuine sorrow, but instead of being worldly, it's oriented to God. It's a Godward sorrow. Now, instead of just seeing your sin as wrong in terms of its consequences or its impact on your reputation, what others think of you, or on your broken relationships, in other words, godly sorrow sees sin as against God first and foremost. So King David in Psalm 51 verse 4 can say, Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And we all know that David had sinned very seriously against Bathsheba, with adultery and oppression, and then with Uriah, her husband, putting him in the front of the battle so he would be killed, and essentially he had her husband killed. So it wasn't that David was saying he hadn't sinned against people, but he's saying primarily, Lord, I know my sin is against you, and my sin against other people all flow out of my sin against you. That is godly sorrow. And godly sorrow, we know, also takes refuge in Christ by faith as the only remedy for our sin. Godly sorrow is a repentance that's oriented to God, and so it's linked inextricably with faith. Faith and repentance are opposite sides of the same coin. One of the common questions that new believers have about their walk with Christ is this one. They notice that they feel more guilt and more conviction about their sin than they ever felt before coming to Christ. And they often wonder, is something wrong? You know, I've turned to Christ, I've come to Him by faith, I've turned from my sin, but now when I still stumble into sin, which all of us do, I feel more guilty about it than before I came to Christ. And the answer to that question is that actually nothing is wrong. That shows that your conscience has been awakened by the Holy Spirit and is much more sensitized. That's a wonderful thing. I mean, the sin isn't wonderful. You know, it's not good that you have to repent of your sin, but the Bible is very realistic about that. This is normal Christian experience. And that person is just noticing that by God's grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, their conscience has been brought to life. But once a person has come to faith in Christ and justified once and for all by Christ, when we do sin, the pain and the sorrow that is being referred to here, this godly grief, this godly sorrow, this sorrow um, of a conscience that is now sensitized to sin should cause us to go back to Christ again and again, confessing our sin and repenting, and by faith, appropriating the complete forgiveness we've been given once for all in Christ by his death on the cross. Godly sorrow is always linked to faith in the gospel. And that's how we come to God initially when we come to Christ, and that's how we walk with Christ every day. We keep coming to God 
and we draw near and we enter the holy place by faith in the blood of Jesus as the author of Hebrews would describe for us. That's how we have fellowship with God. 1 John verse, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 describes it in this way. In verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, Christians are only deceiving themselves if they think they have no sin. All of us, everyone in this room still sins. And the Apostle John is saying, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Even though we are being changed by Christ, the process is slow, and we continue to be grieved by our remaining sin. But God has a solution for our godly sorrow about our sin. The next verse, verse 9 says, and it's a very familiar one, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dr. Walker is going to preach on this verse in a few weeks. But notice that it's in the present tense. If we confess, it's something ongoing and regular in the Christian's life. It's the way we walk with God in fellowship with him. And this is why Paul writes in verse 8 of our text, For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. Why weren't the Corinthians still grieved? Because godly grief is temporary. When you repent and receive forgiveness, your fellowship with Christ is restored. You're always justified by grace through faith. You're saved once and for all. But that daily communion with God is restored. It's a temporary grief. And so we go to Christ again and again when we are convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit and we stand again and again by faith in the gospel. So godly sorrow is a Godward grace. But also we notice that godly sorrow leads to repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Genuine repentance is very different than regret or remorse. Repentance is God-centered. Regret is self-centered. It's characterized by things like self-pity and wounded pride and despair. Judas, we know, is the foremost example of despairing remorse. But Peter, who sinned as well, who denied Christ three times, is an example of genuine repentance, and he's restored by Christ, and he looks to Christ in faith. Listen to how the Shorter Catechism describes true true repentance. Question 87. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with a full purpose of an endeavor to live after a new obedience. Notice that it's oriented toward looking to Christ. It's Christ-centered. It's spirit-imparted grace. Think of the voice of conscience as a God-given alarm in your soul. We know someone who has a house alarm. They've had it for years, and this alarm is really loud. In fact, it has speakers outside of the house. So when it goes off, you can hear it all over the place. But over the years, there have been many false alarms. And so when the neighbors hear it, They don't call the police. They don't even call the people next door. They know, you know, someone forgot to turn off the alarm. Well, that's what worldly sorrow is like. It's an alarm that no one listens to. 
Maybe a good illustration for godly sorrow is a doctor who diagnoses a serious illness. And to receive the cure, we need the diagnosis. It's a warning that we want to hear. If something's wrong with me, let me know so I can get the cure. And so the pain and grief of a guilty conscience is necessary if the disease of our hearts is to be healed by Christ. Well, two closing points of application. Number one, has your conviction of sin led you to faith in Christ? Maybe you've been trying to silence the voice of conscience so that it's getting more and more subdued. It's a dangerous thing. The English pastor John Owen wrote that a guilty conscience makes an uproar in the soul and gives the soul no rest or quiet until the soul be redeemed by Christ. Have you fled to Jesus Christ for redemption and full forgiveness? But for believers, the second application is this. Are you daily repenting of sin and looking to Jesus Christ anew by faith? That is the way to live the Christian life. The very first of Martin Luther's 95 theses, which he nailed on the Wittenberg door, is this, to quote him, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Daily looking to Jesus in repentance and faith. It's the way of joy. It's the way of peace. It's the way of walking in fellowship with God every day. So Christian, don't slip back into empty remorse. Don't slip back into that hardness of heart about your sin with a conscience that's just there convicting you, but you don't do anything about it. Keep short accounts with God. And ask the Holy Spirit to show you your sin. And when he does, confess your sin and desire with Christ's help and by the power of the Spirit to more and more turn away from it, looking to Jesus Christ, who has promised that he will continue the good work he's begun in your life, knowing that he has promised to one day complete it. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts in this matter of walking with you of having a godly sorrow, of having genuine repentance before you, Lord. Help us to not just play the part. Help us to not be hypocrites, but have mercy on us, Lord. And if anybody here doesn't know Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that you would convict them not only of their sin, but show them the glory and the beauty and the sufficiency and the love of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.